Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. How are you? This is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, Ms. Lisa Latimer. Lisa's an author, an activist, a little bit of everything, and everything done well. Welcome to Seldom Said, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if we can start with a little bit of a personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. Sure. Thanks, Robert. So I'm, I'm a Long Island girl. I grew up in Hempstead, Long Island, and spent quite a bit of time uh, in Huntington and Franklin Square. I had a bit of family there. And I went to a private school in Hempstead called St. Ladislaus from kindergarten to sixth grade. At that point, right in the middle of sixth grade, I started to become very bored (laughs) with the school setting. And even though it was a wonderful mix of, of students and I was very comfortable with them, the school was really lacking in terms of extracurricular activities. And so with that, I was able to convince my parents to allow me to attend the Hempstead Middle School, Alberta B. Gray Schultz, Hempstead Middle School. I'm surprised I still remember the whole name. (laughs) Um, And so it was in Hempstead Middle School that I, you know, I initially became very introverted and it was just such a different experience for me. I was out of my comfort zone, but I was able to really take advantage of and kind of initially discover my passion for writing and speaking out about different subjects such as inequalities. Um, I had a lovely English teacher there by the name of Mrs. Aki Wawa. And one particular parent-teacher conference, she told my mother and myself that she was very impressed with my writing abilities. She thought that perhaps I would have a career in journalism and that writing was something that she really encouraged us to kind of pursue and, and you know, that I continue to develop that skill for writing and the passion for writing. Um, And it was through, it was in that school around that time where I had the opportunity through, I believe it was a community outreach program where it was, you know, to keep kids spirits up and, and keep them productive. So it was, I can't remember the name of the program, but it was run by Mr. Robert Adams. And through that program and that weekly exchange, I actually had my first ever article published in the Long Island Courier. And it was the, the uh, title of the article was, Do We Get Enough Black History in Our Textbooks? The obvious answer for that was no. <laughs> and at the end of the article, because I recently revisited it, I made the suggestion, and of course, this is before the internet and and the easy access of information. I suggested that, you know, children either do the research themselves or reach out and speak to their parents, not really taking into consideration that a lot of parents were also really missing the the positive history uh, of African-American culture and I, I just assumed, I guess, that everyone was kind of like my father, who from a very early age made sure that I knew of the other side 
of African-American history, not just the slavery aspect and the oppression aspect, but was informed of the Tuskegee Airmen, the Buffalo Soldiers, and actually our own ancestor, Louis Latimer, the famous African-American inventor who worked very closely. He was a, a, a highly sought after patent draftsman and inventor himself. He worked very closely with uh, Alexander Graham Bell on the telephone and worked very closely as well with, um, with his invention. It was the carbon filament that allowed Edison's light bulb to actually have lasting power. So he worked very closely with Thomas Edison as well, um, you know, on the light bulb and, and his add-on to the light bulb, which actually gave it its, I guess, a degree of legitimacy and lasting power. So, you know, I, I kind of have always known from a young age this positive side of, of the history of African-American culture and contributions. And at that young age, I was, I was already aware of the, to, to what degree it was really missing in the history that we were learning. I would be rather curious, you described your dad as a person who populated your stage with a great many people. There is a quotation attributed to C.S. Lewis, amongst others, that we write to prove we're not alone. How do you react to that? we write to prove that we're not alone. That actually is, that actually, that hit me so deep. That's a wonderful, wonderful idea. We write to let others know we're not alone. Writing and expression and sharing our story is so powerful. And in human, I think it's human nature to want to belong to a tribe, so to speak. To want to have this sense of belonging and uh, this sense of, you know, brotherhood and sisterhood. And I think that writing and, and speaking are just two incredible ways of, of drawing people in and, and letting them know that they're not alone and of also yourself not feeling like you're alone. In, in your experiences and in your perceptions. Your writing style is rather unique. Uh, it's obviously very professional and very provocative, but you also seem to be able to paint with words. Do you look on yourself as an artist who's simply presenting thoughts? Well, I will say that I know the article that you read, um, the article titled The Politics politics and self-awareness. Um, not all of my writing is, is based around politics. It's just caught my attention as of recently. Um, but it's funny that you mentioned, you know, feeling like an artist. I, I, I've always been drawn to the arts in some capacity. My father is a amazing artist, wonderful painter. Um, dabbled in writing just a little bit, but he's a phenomenal painter. So I initially wanted to go into that kind of type of art. But I found out very quickly when I saw my fellow classmates around me that had just this raw talent and passion for painting and drawing, that that wasn't quite where I was going to have a successful creative outlet, if you will. <laughs> so I did. I, I started 
going more into writing and more so recently, to be honest with you, getting into writing and painting a picture and using that as my art form of, of choice. I am rather curious when people are creative mm -hmm. and when they leave things behind that will last long after they've passed from the scene, what their epiphanal moments were. Can you click your heels, close your eyes, make a wish and find yourself back somewhere? <laughs> What's really funny, and I've gotten that question a lot, um, I, and I love the concept of having an epiphany. You know, it's very dramatic. But I have to say that there was really no epiphany. It was more of a journey, uh, more of a process. And actually, most of my major mental shifts that I've made were often very quiet, sudden, and without a major catalyst. But to give you a quick breakdown of that journey, um, and there was one dramatic event that actually did occur within that journey. Um, I actually decided uh, where my, when my focus and where my focus would be established be as a result of very toxic relationships from a very young age. So while I was always a commitment foe when it came to career, because I thought the idea of just picking one thing and sticking with it for the rest of my life just felt very heavy and, and just like too much to bear. Unfortunately, I didn't feel like that about the relationships that I chose. So I was in my first major relationship with my high school boyfriend from about 16 to 27, 28 years old. It's a long time. And, um, and with that relationship from such a young age, so much of my identity and my self-awareness formed around him and his perception of who I was within that relationship. And, you know, when that happens and then a, then a relationship turns toxic, it creates such deep-rooted seeds of, of um, you know, of, of second-guessing yourself. And, and that was, you know, 11 years is a really long time to feel like that about yourself. But once I was able to finally break free of those trauma bonds that I had with him, Unfortunately, I got into a second relationship with someone that I had been friends with for a distance. And that situation actually became very dangerous and violent as um, we moved in together. And I didn't realize that he had this drug addiction that I was very naive to that started emerging. And the dramatic event that kind of catapulted me into self-awareness being my focus was when one particular evening, he, um, he went off in this kind of drug-induced tirade where he thought that I was cheating on him. And what happened from there, I can only describe as a type of a Russian roulette, but with a knife. Uh, finding yourself at the business end of a sharp knife, trying to figure out what, which truth a person who is in a chemical-induced state of crazy wants to hear is a, quite the precarious situation to find yourself in. But nonetheless, I was able to appeal to whatever sensibility he had left in the moment. 
And after that, create enough distance between us where I felt it safe to retreat back to my family in Elmont, Long Island, and begin that self-healing journey and process where I started to, I guess if you say, if you want to call it an epiphany, it dawned on me that we need to focus on self-awareness. Um, that purpose of spreading you know, the message of self-awareness and the power of self-awareness came from all of that chaos because I realized that when we are deeply rooted in self-awareness, it becomes a lot harder for others to manipulate us. And when we're able to understand who we are, our strengths, our weaknesses, and everything in between, it's a lot harder for someone to come in and try and use those weaknesses against us to kind of keep us under their shoe and believing that we don't deserve better. So that's kind of where my life mission came from in my own personal healing journey, wanting to empower others with the same brutal but valuable lessons that I had learned from that. I must be honest with you. In my career, I did receive at one time a phone call from someone in deep distress emotionally, mm -hmm. trying to in some way extrapolate and explain what she was experiencing at the moment. Uh -huh. If you were to meet an individual who is so malleable, given our society, and so threatened, given the cultural ethic, what is the first moat of advice you'd give? Self-awareness, of course. Mm -hmm. But how would you inculcate that in the initial words of your conversation? I honestly, I, I would take a completely different approach. I wouldn't try and give advice. I would listen. I would ask a lot of questions and listen to kind of understand where they're coming from. You know, I, in my book, I, I write, I came from a wonderful family background. You know, I, there was absolutely no abuse. My father is an amazing father. My grandfather is an amazing man. And I was the firstborn grandchild. So I had so much attention and love focused on me. I'm not the person that we normally hear getting into that type of situation. But yet my story is so much more common than we understand. So I would have to know so much about the person's background and kind of where their head is at and what they've been experiencing before I would even feel comfortable to, you know, give advice or, or start to, to guide them in any way. I'm so very pleased you said that. Uh, we seem to live in a society that does not want to bear witness. We live in a society that does not want to listen. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that that uh, can bring up. If we were to continue discussing what you've written and how you've approached it, do you have a, a writing schemata that you use from thought to process to development to page? It's, it's, I'm going to give you a very disappointing answer. <laughs> <laughs> I can just, I can just, I know it, we, we like to kind of romanticize things so often. But, um, if I had to describe, 
actually I could, and I'm going to describe my creative writing process in one word, random. Um, it's very random in the sense that I've, you know, it's, it's ironic that it's random, but I believe that that's actually what allows me to be creative. It's that comfort with randomness of thought, kind of like a pinball machine. You let that ball bounce around randomly and you pay attention to what lights up and then you connect the dots and, you know, and relate it to your life experiences, the life experiences of others, what you see going on in society at the present. And that is how I would describe my creative writing process <laughs> as that simple was, and, and, and non-romantic as that sounds. Perfectly timed, romance notwithstanding. We're about to... <laughs> <laughs> we're about we're about to approach our first station break. Yes. We'll come back and <laughs> pursue some of the questions we've shared, but also uh, you're rather good operating on your feet. So go where you will. I'll yeah. follow. I'll find you. <laughs> perhaps we can ask some follow up questions. Our guest is Lisa Latimer. This is seldom said. My name is Robert. We'll be back in a few moments. Please stay with us. And if there are some things you're thinking about, try to see if we can rationalize some of the answers ourselves and we can help you find those answers. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back to Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest, Lisa Latimer, a woman of a great many opinions, and also an individual who's willing to share them with us. The opinions are valid. The talent is evident. Welcome back, Lisa. Thank you so much again, Robert. Shirley Chisholm, first African-American woman in the House of Representatives, she was once asked, what's more difficult, speaking to your fellow politicians, being black or being a woman? She said, no question, being a woman. Do you agree? Well, <laughs> I'm not a politician. And though I am, you know, I, I'm, my mother's Italian and my father's African American. So, and I actually look and usually am mistaken for Hispanic. So <laughs> I don't, I don't want to speak to the other two. I will speak to being a woman. Um, being a woman, I will, you know, and again, this might not be the answer that some people want to hear. I wouldn't be anything else. <laughs> not that there are a great deal. Not that there are a great deal of options, but um, I would not change being a woman. I. We all go through our things in life, whether you know, regardless of of how we identify. But I will say that if I had the opportunity to really reflect. Do I think I could have come through with the with the deal of empowerment that I feel, you know, as a man? I don't necessarily believe so. I think that there's so much power in being a woman, um, especially now in this time, because we have so many options. We have the internet. We have this means to, to some degree, barrel our way through obstacles that I'm sure, you know, the women that came before us and kind of paved the way for us couldn't necessarily go through as easily. So 
you know, that's her experience and I respect that. But I, I feel so empowered as a woman and it is just my joy to share in that empowerment because I know what it feels like to, to have, uh, to be so lacking in self-awareness, allowing other people to be able to make you feel powerless. I know what that feels like. And then I know what it feels like to be on the complete other side of that. And so I wouldn't change that for the world. And I don't think that if I were a male, I don't think that that message would necessarily be as it wouldn't resonate. We just lost you for a moment. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's perfectly all right. I don't believe that if I were a male, that my story of empowerment and perseverance would be as impactful or resonate as deeply as it does being a woman and sharing that experience. That leads us into the use of your term societal compartmentalizing. It's an interesting term and it carries a, a great many ramifications. Can you define it as you will personally and then uh, discuss your criticisms of it? Absolutely. Um, so in my, in my blog post, um, Politics and Self-Awareness, I, I talk about how I grew up you know, in a biracial family. My mother is white, my father is black. I never at any point in all of my years referred to my mom as my, oh, my white mom and my black father. They were my family. I never said, oh, I'm going to go and play with my black cousins today and then tomorrow I'm gonna have dinner at my white grandparents' house. It wasn't that, they were just my family. And I loved them and just thought of them the way that anyone thinks of their family. Fast forward to today, where we're essentially being forced into strict boxes. And it's having a profound effect on our emotional and really our overall well-being. Um, it, it just gets to the point where we are being forced to think in terms of black and white. And I find it interesting that as a biracial woman, I've never thought in terms of black or white when there was that obvious distinction within my family. And it's just, it's so bizarre because it almost seems like one party owns one idea and the other party holds another idea. When you put these two ideas together, they actually form a cohesive common sense thought. But we're being bullied into basically denying half of our thought process and our instincts, which also makes it that much more difficult to relate to and empathize with others. So for example, the big you know, topic of division right now is do we open the country? Do we reopen our country? And what's so bizarre is that the way that this kind of social compartmentalizing has, has taken us to, you can't empathize with the people who can't feed their families and pay their bills right now, as well as acknowledge that people have every right to fear for their health and be afraid of dying. <laughs> it's, it's a common sense thought, and you can merge those two thoughts together, but one party 
you know, it, it seems like the conservatives want to reopen the, co the country. And if you think like that, you must be a conservative. You must be a capitalist who just doesn't care about human life. If you are fearful for people's health and you believe that we should stay kind of in this shelter in place deal for a little bit longer, uh, you know, you are a liberal who's overreacting, you're anti-America, anti-capitalism, and you just want and are comfortable with the government coming in and telling you what to do. Um, and some examples that I have in my post, um, you know, politics and self-awareness are, you, you can't believe in climate change and that we should pay attention to climate change but not necessarily have to force families of four, let's say, onto bicycles or eliminate air travel. You can't be pro-law enforcement and also pro-minority, even though the majority or huge population of the, um, you know, of law enforcement, especially here in New York, happen to be minority. They're forcing us into either you know, are thinking it's got to be black or white. We cannot linger in this humongous gray area, which is where common sense and really the heart of humanity exists in this gray area. It's a marvelous title, Politics and Self-Awareness. How would you respond to those who say, look, you don't see yourself that way, but the world at large does? And they're going to impede on your sensitivities and your consciousness and force you to rationalize and confront. What is your reaction? My reaction is that that's a welcome, healthy, you know, debate. That's, that's something that we should all welcome. When we get into a deeper level of self-awareness, we're able to be confronted. Not only are we able to be confronted by others, but we're able to confront ourselves and call out BS, if you will, on ourselves without having to necessarily get to the point where we're being poked and prodded by others to do so. So when we're self-aware and we're operating in a deeper level of self-awareness, we can have those types of conversations. We can have other people criticize us. We can have other people express freely their opinions. And we can say, hey, you know what? You make a good point. I never thought of it that way. And that is where, that's part of what makes this country so great. That is part of what a healthy democracy, and not just a healthy democracy, but healthy individuals, this is what we can do. This is what we're supposed to thrive at. This is what America is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about this kind of ability to hear and see people from all different experiences in life, whether, you know, whether it's a different experience because of their religion, their culture, their socioeconomic background, their sex, what they identify as. We're supposed to be that nation that can take it all in constructively and not either run and hide from these types of, uh, you know, dialogues and, and, and exchanges. But we're doing that. We're 
we're running, we're hiding, and even worse, we are shutting people up. We're not wanting to have conversations with people that might either challenge us or that think differently than we do. Um, and I think that it's because, and I, part of me almost doesn't want to make this, draw this similarity, but it, it's so obvious I can't ignore it. Um, we're seeing such a disturbing trend in politics that I feel almost mirrors the narcissistic abusive relationships that I experienced for over 10 years. Um, and, <laughs> and it's really having such damaging effects on our individual and our collective self-awareness. You know, we're dealing with people who are supposed to be our political leaders that demean, belittle, and bully others. They have a huge sense of entitlement. They exploit others without guilt or shame. We, they need constant praise and admiration. And they tend to keep others around them that will just support their delusions of grandeur. And so we're starting to fall into this cycle where we're essentially in an abusive relationship with politicians. And we're not packing our bags and leaving the way that we often expect a woman to so easily do when she's in an abusive relationship. A lot of us don't even realize that we're in this pattern of abuse with our political leaders. Once again, that title, Politics and Self-Awareness, you're obviously very self-aware as a human being. Have you ever thought about yourself becoming activist as a politician? At one time I did. <laughs> and <laughs> I would have to say at this point, absolutely not. My, my activism is in spreading the message of the importance and the power of self-awareness and lending my strength and my, my story, my mistakes, all of it, lending it to others so that they can work on growing in their self-awareness and, and, you know, then share as well. It's, it's kind of a way of paying it forward. Once you get so involved in your personal growth, you, you kind of, you owe it to the world to share that. Um, and like you made reference to before, let other people know that they're not alone and that there is so much power in going through all of your experiences, even the ones that were awful and being able to share them because then, you know, I could sit here and I could be someone that dealt with abuse and then did nothing with it. Or I could be someone who sits here and, and dealt with abuse and things that could have destroyed me. And I take those experiences and I, I use that to confuse somebody else's strength and, and perseverance to get through their own storm. And so I think that in being able to affect people outside of politics, there's so much more power. There's so much more kind of latitude to be able to do that when you're not in politics. And I don't want to end up another political leader that people are so wary of. I, I have so much pride in just being part of we the people. So I, I wouldn't turn to politics. <laughs> Dr. Martin Luther King often told us that he did not want to integrate us into a burning house. Did he perceive of it as too dangerous? Is that going too far? 
Uh, well, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was just inspirational on so many different levels. You know, he is the one African American figure that we all learn about and admire and love. And I think he made a valid point. <laughs> um, and I, I think that when you go too deep into politics, you not only do you face the the danger of becoming jaded yourself and you know just kind of being in a pool of people who i don't know they, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in energy and i just feel like politicians at this point i i don't know anyone that would want to get sucked into that energy but i think it's dangerous i think there is a danger in getting into politics if you actually want to affect change that sounds counterintuitive but if you think about it and if we look at what is going on i feel that the greatest way to affect change is to stand outside of that burning house <laughs> and and not get so close to that fire and try to pull others away from that fire as well if they want to go into that burning building uh, an attempt to, to take us all with them, which kind of is what it seems like their goal is, let them. <laughs> but I prefer to stand outside of that building and keep as many people out of that building uh, as possible. I can therefore presuppose that the term optimist hopefully applies to both of us. We're about yes. to enter into our second station break. We'll be coming back in a few moments. Special guest today. The conversation has been quite enlightening. My name is Robert. The program is seldom said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back, Seldom Said, into another segment. This has gone by rather quickly, and that's usually indicative of a fine program. Returning to that issue of identification as gender, sexual orientation, race, our own grandchildren, two of them are interracial. We live in a society where labeling, as you say, is often overused. Mm -hmm. Do you feel the term race has never been fully identified, discussed, or illuminated in this culture of ours? Well, as far back as I can recall, um, no, it has not. And I, I very sadly, and I, I do think that we might be at this tipping point now where everyone is just kind of sick of the status quo. Um, there will never be an honest conversation about race in a society that refuses to allow people the freedom of self-awareness in order to be able to feel acknowledge and own any biases that they may hold for fear that the bloodthirsty cancel culture will swoop in and create a social media campaign that seeks to destroy them and everything that they've ever worked their lives to achieve. You just can't set up an, an honest dialogue under those conditions. People at this point feel so attacked and so shamed 
into themselves to, you know, to retreat within that having those conversations with themselves is even difficult, much less being able to articulate these things to others. Um, and so at this point, I think that it's merely a romantic notion, kind of a thoughtful soundbite with very, very little skin in the game. Um, the furthest we've gotten within that conversation is saying that we need to have that conversation. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and I personally, I don't even know at this point if the people who occasionally mention wanting to have that conversation really want to genuinely approach it with the intentions of learning and exchanging or just wanting to have someone talk and then wait their turn to speak and shut the other person down. And I'm not talking about someone like yourself or me, but when we hear these people that actually have a very large platform and they say, you know, we need to have a conversation. Okay. So let's get the conversation started. Take the lead. You have a platform. Let's go. You know, there's very little skin in the game. And, um, and again, we've, we've gotten so used to this culture of attacking people and our politicians are shining examples of how to attack people and belittle people. And so I just don't think that it breeds for an environment where a conversation like that will happen. If there are a trinity in my own life, philosophically, intellectually, morally, those three individuals are my father, who is an activist, mm -hmm. and openly so at a time when it wasn't popular, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who I had the pleasure of meeting, and Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King often said to us as an audience, but also to individuals at large, that Christ gave him the message and Gandhi gave him the method. Are you one who believes in acquiescence, the acceptance of injustice, and simply setting a standard of good behavior? Or do you feel at some point we must say, as Luther did, here I stand, I can do no other? I think that we have the obligation to not settle for injustice. Um, and it is going to take someone, <laughs> that pioneer, to, to you know, be the first one to put it out there and to risk it all. And it will indeed be risking it all. Make no doubt about that. In this culture, it will be, that person will be risking it all. Um, And it's, it's funny because I feel like we all kind of go about, you know, approaching activism, which even though I'm not for politics, I am 100% for activism. I think we should know who we truly are and what truly resonates with us and matters to us and then go out and find and support, uh, support causes that align with that. So we do that and that's wonderful, but still that conversation, that national conversation hasn't been approached yet. And I think that in order to approach that conversation, the conversation starter is going to have to come out, put their own biases into the light and just kind of stand there and withstand the rocks and the arrows that are going to come their way. And, you know, Whether or not that will encourage others to come out, I don't know. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for it, though. But settling is something that I think we've been doing for far too long, and that's why 
I wrote that political piece, um, you know, politics and self-awareness, almost I feel like you could tell the, the degree of anger and resentment that I have towards politicians and this culture that we've created um, around putting ourselves in boxes and staying to our teams because it's, it's not progressive. It's not moved us forward. It's taken us so far backwards that, um, you know, there's just much ground that we have to recover. The poet Yeats wrote that the center at times doesn't hold. What do you propose then to hold both sides together until they realize that there are similarities and they outweigh the differences? Oh, I have a solution for that. (laughs) It might might sound a little simple, but I think that sometimes we overlook the simple, seemingly obvious solution um, because we just assume that simple doesn't work. So I used to allow myself to get pulled into different political battles. I've voted at different points, you know, for both sides of the aisle. And what I did that is so small, but has had such a tremendous impact on my psyche, instead of checking off the Democrat box, instead of checking off the, you know, the, uh, the Republican box in terms of what party I identify as, I started checking off, checking off the independent box. And, and I have to say that in doing that, I noticed that I started allowing myself in thought and in conversation with others, more of a fluidity, more of this ability to, to go back and forth in thought in a graceful way, rather than reacting like a cat that's got its back up against the wall. Um, so it got me thinking, what would happen if we all collectively kind of put our hand up and said, stop? This is enough. I am not taking this abuse anymore. And instead of standing with Democrat or Republican, if we stood as independents all together, as we the people, not as me the Democrat or me the Republican, but as we the people, as independents, you don't own me, you don't own my vote. It's not a sure thing. It's not in the bag for you. What would happen if politicians couldn't just put their finger up to the wind and and see which way the wind was blowing and then decide how to tailor their pitch to us? If we all decided to go the independent route, allowing ourselves the ability to still have love and pursue the activist causes that we want to, whether they fall on the left side of the aisle or the right side of the aisle, doesn't matter. But just when it comes for voting purposes, to tell our abusers, so to speak, I'm not tolerating this anymore. And checking off the independent box is just the beginning. So hopefully you get the message and you change your behavior. Do you feel, especially with children, the reality of that decision needs to be expressed? 
Barack Obama mentioned having the talk, and I've heard that a thousand times with Latin American and African American friends. Are we aware of the price one pays for all of this? I, my own father actually gave me the talk and, you know, when I was young, yeah. And my, my nephews, they're, you know, they're guy, half Guyanese. So, and my father is actually going to give them the talk as well. So I believe that the talk is important. I believe that to a degree, and when it's done in a positive way, it, it builds self-awareness, but and, and that talk, by the way, that's up to every family to navigate however they see fit. My hope for that talk, however, is that they go about it in a way that doesn't leave their children in fear or with a feeling of helplessness. Um, you know, when I wrote that article about the need for more Black history, it's because what we get is often so repetitive and overshadowed by the stories of being conquered and, and, you know, lacking power to some degree. And I believe it's done on purpose. I don't believe it's done by accident because if we also showed the stories of everyday men, like for example, my grandfather, Isham Latimer, who in those times was a man that was happily married with a beautiful wife, beautiful family of six, beautiful home, and with his floor waxing machine, had his own floor waxing business and was very successful and very happy. You know, we, we get this presentation of, of one dimension and we are not one dimensional people. Um, and it got me to thinking also, you know, why do we always see pictures like in the publicity shots of politicians? when they come into our communities, they're always in the, the housing project areas. The politicians, when they stand there for their photo ops, they're standing there in, in, you know, in the areas that look like they're not doing so well. Why don't they take their photo ops in one of the hundreds and thousands of black or minority owned businesses or visit us in our homes? with our families, you don't often see that photo op or that publicity shot. Um, so I hope that when families have that talk with their children, as they should, that they make sure that the underlying message is that of hope, that of empowerment, and that of worthiness, to know that I'm having this talk with you because you're worthy and deserving of being treated as an equal. And, you know, and, and I want to mentally and emotionally prepare you for the fact that not all people will treat you like that, but you need to know that that is how you deserve to be treated. I do want to make sure that we put out on the airwaves some contact information for you. Mm -hmm. There are some interesting issues being discussed here that should be discussed by everybody in this country. If I were to ask you to share both the title of your book again and how one might receive a copy, are there some things you'd like to share with a listening audience? Oh, I would love to, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I'm going to say the clean title of my book. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the title of my book is called Who the F Are You? Get self-aware to stop getting your butt kicked and live a kick-ass life. <laughs> um, it, that's just my personality. I'm very colorful. You might, you've gotten just a smidgen of that today. <laughs> um, I, I do have my website is uh, lisalatimer.com. The book, by the way, is going to be available on amazon.com um, May 10th. So they'll be able to get that on May 10th. And it's not a political book at all, but it is where my passion is and it is what we all need. It is all about self-awareness and how we can use it to create fulfillment in every aspect of our lives. This way we don't necessarily get dragged into this political mudslinging and manipulation so easily. When you have joy in different parts of your life and fulfillment in different parts of your life, there's no need to pay attention or, you know, to, to feel, to be pushed and pulled in all of these directions that our political environment is currently, you know, forcing upon us. So they can get the book there. You can visit me on my website, lisalatimer.com, um, where you will find a lot of posts. Not all of them are quite as heavy as the post um, politics and self-awareness. And also on my Facebook page, you can find my Facebook page, uh, the symbol for at, so at personal growth lifestyle. And I'm actually creating a group right now. Uh, and it's called empowerment, passion, and purpose for entrepreneurs, leaders, and goal getters to who are overcoming toxic relationships. So whether it's a toxic romantic relationship, um, maybe you're coming from a toxic work environment or work culture, a toxic surrounding of any sort, and you have goals that you want to achieve and you want to get past the negative self-talk and you want to get yourself into a growth mindset, that group is going to be created specifically uh, to create that tribe of people. You seem to have mastered the use of a provocative consonant. <laughs> I, I would... <laughs> Thanks to my mother. <laughs> I can appreciate that. <sighs> Our guest is Lisa Latimer. It has been a marvelous conversation, hopefully one that uh, would lend itself to a continuance. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Be back in time. <laughs> <laughs>